0: Jesus' sermon on the Mount or in the bowl is over. His authoritative teaching style is won over multitudes. Until now, they've been taught empty ritualism and the rules of their present religious systems. Jesus offers something new, something fresh, and something brave. And he becomes famous. Thousands of people all over the country know him by name, even the Romans. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will continue to talk about faith. The sermon told us that fulfillment of the law was righteousness, and only righteousness can enter the kingdom, and only Jesus was capable of doing this. This is going to require some serious faith. The first level of faith that people will have is in his healing power, and first up is an unnamed leper. This is found in Matthew 8, 1-4. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest. And offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So Jesus swiftly cures this man of a thing that no one could cure. It's a messianic sign or you know a, a sign of God himself. and he is to go show the priest that he has been healed from leprosy because that would clue them in that God was on the move that the Messiah was near. Now, Elijah had healed leprosy before in the Old Testament, but as the years went by, the Jewish rabbis noticed that no one had been following the rules in Leviticus 14 about showing your cured leprosy to the priests. Why? Nobody had been cured of it since the days of Elijah. This caused rabbis to begin to teach that only the coming anointed one would be able to replicate it. Jesus is fitting the bill. He is that powerful and he is that kind. You don't often find people with enormous power these days having the kindness to to even see someone that has leprosy. Jesus is special. Now a Roman is next to come seeking Jesus' healing power. And we're going to look at both Luke and Matthew's perspectives on this next story. In Luke 7, 1-9, it says this, After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus has entered his hometown of ministry, Capernaum, with his disciples. The Roman centurion hears that Jesus is back in town and currently his favorite servant is deathly ill. We don't know what their relationship was, but he was highly valued by the centurion and so he has sent for Jesus. Now, according to Luke, the word used for servant is doulos, which is the common word for slave. However, in Matthew and even later in Luke 7, The centurion calls his servant his pahis. This is not the common word for slave. It's a word used for male child under training. And this is the typical way of describing the younger partner in a homosexual pederasty relationship in first century Rome. Caesar Augustus had forbidden his soldiers from marriage and families. And so for a relationship, it was common for these men to have emotional, physical relationships with women that were not their wives and men who were not their husbands. Pederasty was a socially acknowledged relationship between an older male and a teenage male. And while some young men could have been forced into this relationship, many were free in ancient Greece, it would depend on your region. In Athens it was reserved for the elite, but in Sparta it was a mandatory step in warrior training. The centurion also says that this Pahis is precious to him. Entimos. In Matthew, when the centurion tells Jesus, he understands that Jesus can command the healing and it be done, because he commands his servants and things get done he switches to use the word for slave instead of the word he used for his precious young man. It's just as possible that this centurion is a homosexual as it is a heterosexual. In fact, the former is more probable. Now, this isn't condoning the behavior. I believe Paul will have words about this practice later on, and by that I mean pederasty. But loving and healing is not condoning. Jesus loves both these men, and the purest faith can come from within any vessel. This particular centurion is well liked by the Jews in Capernaum, for he had aided in their construction of the synagogue, but he doesn't feel worthy of seeking Jesus in person, so he sends the Jewish elders on his behalf. Some scholars think the Roman suspects Jesus' prejudice against Romans, so he sends friendly Jews. I think it's more likely that the centurion's not coming to Jesus in person because his faith has identified Jesus for who he is, the holy son of man, and may even not wish to expose Jesus to the full nature of his relationship with the man needing healing. Matthew makes it appear as if the centurion speaks directly to Jesus, and Luke has him sending the elders. Those really aren't that different. If the centurion has people speaking to Jesus on his behalf, then it would read like he was present if Matthew doesn't choose to be detailed enough to mention the messengers. What is really shocking here is that so far, Jesus has been dealing with mostly the Jewish people and having a mixed response. Some multitudes follow him and listen to him. Uh, others want him to die. But the Roman soldier is said by Jesus to have the greatest faith he has seen in all of Israel. That means greater faith than those behind him. Peter, James, John, and the other disciples. And that's a major statement. Faith, then, is a heart issue that only the Lord sees. Only he can say who has more faith than someone else. This centurion must have believed that not only was Jesus a miracle worker, but that he was God's son. He may be the first person to identify that in part or in full. And he may have been a homosexual. Jesus' disciples and followers are intrigued. He speaks with authority, but they've not come to grips with the fact that Jesus is more than the future king. He isn't just a royal figure from the line of David, he is God incarnate, the perfect image of God. This centurion must be closer to getting it, and he shows this by saying he's not worthy to approach Jesus. Then when he sees that Jesus is coming, he won't let Jesus in his house. He understands the holiness of Jesus in ways that no one yet understands. The elders he sends pleads with Jesus that the man is worthy of his time that he's special in the faith. Well, that part really wasn't necessary. Jesus is amazed at this man's faith. Then he says in Matthew's account in Matthew eight eleven to 13, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Kingdom entrance will be for people in the east and the west alike. It will not be for any one people. No matter your nationality, no matter your geographic location, whether you're from the east or the west, a man or a woman, the people of faith will eat with the Lord in his kingdom. As a person that has Irish and German heritage, rather than Jewish heritage, um, this is great news. The Messiah has come from the Jews, but he makes that narrow way open to all humankind. There is also a warning here. Some subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus will use this phrase from time to time, and sometimes fire will be involved in the Other times it won't be. Each time Jesus uses the phrase, we have to interpret it within its own context. And so this outer darkness may not have a universal meaning. The reference in this case appears to mean missing the kingdom altogether. Those of the kingdom of Israel born into Judaism are not saved seats. It is by faith. So, if you reject the work of Jesus and his perfection on your behalf, you have no seat in the kingdom. Those without faith, no matter what family they're in, are not safe. They will be cast out into the darkness. So, new to the disciples' worldview is Romans can be in the kingdom? No, my king... Wait, how can you eliminate the Roman Empire and set up your kingdom if you offer grace to Romans? See, even here, Jesus is giving people a reason to hate him or kill him. Jesus, if you don't set up your kingdom in the way we expect, then you're not the Messiah. You're a blasphemer. Let's not miss the amazing long-distance miracle that happens here as well. Jesus heals the centurion servant. Jesus grants a blessing of healing to this man who has strong faith. Jesus is on the move, seeking out the lost and the hurting. Now, this next one is extra fun because it's one that I find many Christians aren't that familiar with. It's only found in Luke's gospel, and it's definitely not used in any Sunday school material because the imagery is creepy. Luke 7, 11-17 Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So Luke alone captures this giant miracle, really an unfathomable miracle, which no other gospel writer records. For the first time, Jesus demonstrates the full magnitude of his power. He raises someone from the dead. Jesus has power over death. That's supernatural. That's awesome. And This woman doesn't even necessarily have faith in Jesus. His heart simply goes out to her. He sees a woman who's lost her only son and his heart goes out to her. He understands human loss. You know, Jesus' heart goes out to people, anyone and everyone in this world. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a jerk or a problem child or a wonderfully charitable person. His heart goes out to you and you don't have to clean up your life before you come to him. He He's interested in you way before you're interested in him. So Jesus' heart goes out to her and he does something that these people had never seen. He lays his hand on a casket of the woman's son. Tells him to get up. And his life returns into his body. And the people are amazed and terrified by this. They accept that he's a prophet sent by God, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi. But, like, what does this mean? And how far-reaching is this story? Well, it goes all the way to John the baptizer in prison. Remember, John's locked up. Jesus had moved away from the Jordan River up into Galilee to start preaching after John got arrested. And while John is locked up, he's going through a crisis of faith. He doesn't know what to think anymore. Have you been through a crisis of faith? You've been with Jesus, you know Jesus, you've experienced him, and yet you go through a dark valley and you begin to wonder how strong he is, how big he is, or how in control he is. Or maybe your church had a sex scandal. Maybe you see all your Christian friends become worshipers of politicians. Maybe you were abused by people that, You should have been able to trust, and it causes you to doubt. John the baptizer is going through this. He hears the news about Jesus' miracles and message, but then why is John left in prison? Is Jesus really the guy John thought he was? So he sends a message to Jesus asking him to confirm his identity. Truly, the centurion has the strongest faith of all, for even John the baptizer needs confirmation. Perhaps John senses his death is around the corner, and he wants reassurance that his ministry has not been in vain. Luke 718 23 The disciples of John reported all of these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John was called by God to be a voice in the wilderness, paving the way for the Messiah. He's the guy that is represented in Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, 1. He does ministry for just under a year before being arrested. And he probably imagines, along with other educated Jews, that the Messiah is going to set up his kingdom like people set up kingdoms, through power and authority and conflict. But Jesus is obviously not doing that. And so John is at a crisis of faith. Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? And what I find interesting is that Jesus doesn't send a message to him. Yes, I'm the Messiah. He doesn't send a message. Yes, I will set up my kingdom, but it will start in people's hearts. Jesus instead tries to affirm John by reminding him of what he's doing. He is fulfilling messianic prophecy from isaiah's scroll about miracles and because of that he should not fall away or stumble from faith in him jesus gives john the information he needs to confirm that yes he is the messiah so stand strong in that knowledge jesus tells his disciples the same earlier in the year jesus had read the scroll of isaiah in the synagogue in nazareth he read Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 2, and he is continuing to check these boxes and fulfill these prophecies. Jesus is in a position to help John's faith dilemma. He could have told John point blank to trust him. Instead, Jesus represents the evidence and leaves the free will choice in John's hands. Jesus gives all of us the same choice. Now, no gospel writer records John's reaction to this message, so we're left to ponder how he responded. But after sending the message to John, Jesus uses the opportunity to teach some more. Luke 7, 24-28 When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Jesus leads the crowds to a correct conclusion that John is a prophet from God. Jesus says John is even more than a prophet. He's the forerunner of the Messiah, and he quotes some prophecy about it. This passage speaks of two messengers. First, the forerunner, which is John, and then second, the Messiah, the purifier, the covenant bringer, who is Jesus himself. Then Jesus says something that people can get stuck on. He says, John is the greatest prophet ever born. He's John is the greatest in the universe, but in the kingdom, he'll be last. Does this mean that John didn't remain faithful to his death and got confused and isn't part of the kingdom? I don't think so, because then he wouldn't be last in the kingdom. He would be in the outer darkness. If you ask me, I think Jesus is saying that a person who has great capabilities as a prophet, like Samuel, Elijah, and John are great among humans. But being a prophet will still be considered a small thing compared to someone who's received kingdom citizenship because they had to be perfect to get it, right? At least through substitution with Jesus in their place. That's one way to look at it. Now, what's the people's reaction Luke 729 29-30, when all the people heard this and the task collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So yeah, if you were baptized by John, you liked that he was important. If you weren't baptized by him or you had rejected him, then you don't like this kind of talk. You're going to work to shut it down. And the religious leaders no doubt have heard about the last few events. Jesus is shattering the view of kingdom entrance in his sermon. They hear how he's extending kingdom passes to Romans. Most recently, they've heard that he's brought a dead man back to life. They'd be alarmed at his apparent increase in power. They would be threatened that they might be losing their own power to control and manipulate people religiously. He's making blind people see and sick people well. Okay, then he's like, just, that's just good for the neighborhood. But bringing people back from the dead is powerful. An unrivaled type of power. So they really have three options. Either Jesus is a necromancer, or Jesus is a prophet like Elijah, or he truly is the foretold Messiah. And they choose incorrectly. Instead of accepting it as divine, they'll instead accuse Jesus of having power from Satan. They're cold, shut off, alone, denying Jesus. They're disappointed in their loss of power. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 7:31 to 35. "'To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another.'" We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So who's he talking about when he says, this generation? likely the generation of religious leaders because of the context of these verses, he compares them to children who want others to respond to their power, comparing it to music. They're petulant children who want attention. They say, Hello, temple attendees, we played the flute for you. We tooted our own horn, but you're not dancing. We sang a sad song and you do not cry. What's going on? John comes along, and he's too weird. He's too ascetic. He's too set apart. He's dunking people in the river. We think he's demon-possessed. But you follow him. And then Jesus comes along, and he's apparently a sinner. He's eating and drinking with people that are bad company. He's a drunken and an overeater. So his message must be flawed. But you follow him too. wah, wah. Neither extreme makes the Pharisees happy. Like children, they say, you didn't do that right or, or, or this right. I don't appreciate that decision or this one. This isn't the way we used to do it. They sound like judgers. And Jesus says, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Wisdom, who's usually personified as a woman in the Old Testament, is shown to be true by the lives of those who follow her that phrase connects comparing the religious generation to the marketplace children. Some people hear the wisdom of God preached and they don't say amen because they know that they're not going to do anything with it. Some people hear the wisdom of God taught and then they're driven by the spirit to believe it and try it to the best they can in their own weakness. They renew their minds. They become wisdom's children. Wisdom's children put Jesus in the center of their lives to the best of their ability in very broken ways, but they do it because it's wise. They dance to the tune of the gospel rather than to the flutes of tradition. And this is why deconstruction can be so life-giving. You tune out all the traditional flutes and you look for what Jesus is calling us to be about. Jesus is saying that the ones who are following Jesus and John, wisdom's children, are proof enough of the correctness of their teaching. And it's so true. Wisdom will be proven right by all her children. God asks each of us to respond appropriately to wisdom's call. We aren't wise every day, but God's children are always wisdom's children. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we wanna think about what in our minds needs renewed. Are we wisdom's children Or are we stuck dancing in the streets to the flutes of tradition? Are we listening to Jesus and seeing the least of these and loving them? We won't be great at it, but we can renew our minds to that being our focus. Jesus is truly worth listening to. He has all the power and all the kindness. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will give some warning.